One big lesson from the COVID pandemic, you need solid data to mount an effective response. And that was one of the CDC's biggest challenges in the early days of COVID-19. Things we know now, like the fact that minorities who were disproportionately impacted were tough to nail down with precision. That's because CDC had pretty limited demographic and socioeconomic data on the virus's impacts. The Health and Human Services Inspector General found the CDC did manage to fill in some of those data gaps over time, and some of what it did could help inform future public health responses. Adam Freeman is Deputy IG for Evaluation and Inspections. He spoke with Federal News Network's Jared Serbu. Adam, thanks again for doing this. And I guess the place I'd like to start is if you could take us through a little bit what COVID revealed in terms of the data gaps and seams that we have here and the disparities it revealed, because I think one of the big takeaways here is these issues are not necessarily COVID specific. Yes. Thank you, Jared, for having me. You know, we started this work because of the early reports of COVID disparities and the pandemic, as well as concerns about the CDC not sufficiently collecting or reporting race and ethnicity data. So we wanted to go in and find out what data CDC had, didn't have, and how it used that data to identify and address disparities We did that by talking with multiple groups within CDC's response team, as well as a selection of uh, jurisdictional partners that CDC works with, asking about their collaboration and the data challenges that they face. And I think the big takeaway here, uh, sort of two big takeaways, but the first one that, you know, CDC's data on race, ethnicity, and socioeconomic status for COVID-19 does have limitations. It has improved over the course of the pandemic in terms of completeness, but it is still not 100% complete. And we also found that the data can sometimes be inconsistent or inaccurate. So in terms of categories and definitions being different as they're used and combined in the data. And so that ultimately sort of limits CDC's having a complete picture of the disparities in COVID. Did you get into finding any real-world impacts from those data gaps and disparities? I mean, did it have meaningful consequences for CDC's response in those early days when the data wasn't so good? Yeah, you know, data is the key, sort of a key piece of all of CDC's responses, right, to all public health issues that it deals with. And so I think those data limitations did, as I said, sort of limit the completeness of the picture that CDC could have of the disparities. That said, I think the other big takeaway from this report is that despite those limitations, CDC was able to use the data that it did have, both sort of complete or incomplete, as well as collecting other data sources to help inform its understanding of disparities and therefore its response. So we found overall that CDC was able to sort of put together the data it had to do its job in this important area. Yeah, let's talk a little bit more about the improvements that the agency made along the way. I think with some help from Congress and from the CARES Act, how did that picture start to come into a clearer focus once they started cobbling together from other data sources Yeah, so CDC did take steps to improve the quality of the data that it was getting on race and ethnicity. So that included actions like standardizing the COVID-19 case reports that jurisdictions would use, as well as supporting um, direct electronic reporting from like labs and jurisdictions, which improves the quality of the data. So those are some actions that it took to try and drive improvements. And then some of these were mandated by Congress, if I'm remembering correctly, in the CARES Act. Labs, I think, for example, were required to start collecting more data and transmitting that to CDC. And one of the things I wonder from those kinds of changes are, how enduring are they? How much are they going to apply to future health emergencies or these sort of one-off improvements that were specific to the COVID response? 
That's a good question. You know, I think a key lesson we learned from this work is that CDC can improve its demographic data. It can continue to improve its demographic data to help it quickly identify and hopefully mitigate disparities. And that applies to COVID-19, but also beyond that to other public health emergencies. And, you know, on my mind is the recently declared emergency for monkeypox. So because of the structure of these data systems, many different partners involved in collecting and submitting and reporting the data up to CDC, I think many of the changes that CDC is trying to make, including, as I mentioned, electronic case and lab reporting, as um, you mentioned from the CARES Act, will hopefully endure and prepare CDC to better identify and respond to disparities in the future. Yeah, and it seems like part of the issue here might be timeliness, because getting the data is one thing. Having it in a format that you can quickly make sense of and use to inform the ongoing responses is probably a little bit of a different thing. Did you get a good sense for how quickly they can put good data to use once they've got good data? So the sort of speed with which CDC was able to analyze the data, I think, would vary and wasn't a focus of this report specifically, but we certainly have plenty of examples in the report of how CDC has been able to use data to inform its ongoing actions throughout the pandemic to address disparities. So that could be informing funding opportunities and where and and what kind of funding and technical assistance it's giving to different partners. And also sort of in the vein of collecting more data and collecting additional data to get information that around, say, targeted messaging for communities most at risk, um, where testing locations uh, would be located, things like that. So CDC has been able to use the data that it has to inform its interventions as we've been going through the pandemic. All right. And as we start to wind down here, why don't you share a little bit about your recommendations for CDC going forward? So primarily, we recommended that CDC expand the actions that it's taken so far. And that, as I said, includes working with its partners to improve the quality and completeness of the data that it gets, as well as um, working on its own to try and collect additional data sources or compile additional data sources. And we recognize that both of those approaches have value and that CDC needs to strike the right balance between those with its resources. So we recommended that CDC continue both of those approaches, and CDC did concur and outline some actions that it will take to do that, including new funding for data infrastructure, as well as some collaborative partnerships. We found that tribal partners sometimes reported that they didn't have access to the data they need. That is something that had been reported in the past, both in the media and congressional testimony, and we recommended that CDC work to ensure that those tribal partners get access to that data mirroring erect from the Government Accountability Office, and they are taking action on that as well. Adam Freeman, Deputy Inspector General for Evaluations and Inspections at the Health and Human Services Department, speaking with Federal News Network's Jared Serbu. Find this interview and a link to the report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello, I'm WIPA CEO Shane Canfield, and thank you for joining us on another episode of Lessons in Leadership. I'm honored to be joined by Angie Bailey, founder and CEO of Ananda Life. Angie has a remarkable career in public service, beginning as a GS2 clerk typist with the Social Security Administration. And over the next 40 years, Angie steadily worked her way up through the government, ultimately becoming the Chief Human Capital Officer at the Department of Homeland Security. She's been recognized with presidential rank awards by two administrations for leadership, innovation, dedication, and commitment to the country. Angie, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Shane. What a pleasure to be here. Angie, you've made quite a name for yourself as a leader in the federal workforce. Who was the first person you remember looking up to 
as a leader? And what about them inspired you? you know, I often think about this because, you know, sometimes we think of the people that we look up to the most as being somebody that throughout our career has, you know, been at the highest levels and all. But, I, you know, I've got to go back to honestly, whenever I was 10 years old, and uh, I remember I really wanted to play Little League Baseball on a boys team. I was the only girl. And interestingly, it was the women who would keep saying to me that, no, I couldn't play. And then one day, whenever I was there to sign up yet again, uh, there was this guy, his name was Delbert Beiser. And uh, I remember he had like red hair and he had wadded tobacco in his mouth and greasy overhauls and everything. And he said, you know, I'll take her, I'll take her on my team. And, you know, just looking back on that, there's so many leadership lessons and things that I just really admire about him. And actually, I thought about throughout my entire career, he took a chance on somebody he didn't know. He um, put aside whatever conscious or unconscious biases that he might have had about having a girl on a team. He treated me the same, uh, whether you know, if I wasn't performing, I got benched just like the boys. I got no special treatment. And, and, and he was just really honest with me and he just included me in everything. And so looking back on it, you know, really it was Delbert Beiser, our local mechanic in our little small village that was, I think, my inspiration for going on to, I hope, become the leader, um, you know, that, that I wanted to be. I'd say half of the guests on this podcast have had similar stories where they reach back to either childhood or young adulthood. And I, and I think as leaders, it's really incumbent upon us to keep that in mind, that, that what we say and do, admit, especially in the younger ages, really can have a lifelong impact. How would you describe your leadership style? And, and how has that developed over time? I would say that the one word that describes my leadership style is that I care. Um, I guess that's more than one word, but I care. Uh, I, I've always cared about the mission. I've always cared about the people. I've always cared, you know, about making sure that that they had what they needed or that they were developing the way, uh, you know, that they aspired to develop. And I tried to take this approach of not treating people the way I wanted to be treated, but instead treat people the way they wanted they want to be treated. And I think that that really kind of developed over my career. You know, I started out just like most leaders do where it's very results driven. It's all about the bottom line. You need to make sure that you get everything accomplished because, you know, that's what everybody's looking for, the goals, the metrics, et cetera. But I think as you mature and you go along, you start to, to your point, you draw back on those early childhood days or early adult young, you know, whenever you're a young adult and you say, you know, I think that there's a little bit more to this than just the bottom line. And so over time, I really began to, I, I think, see a much bigger picture and the entire ecosystem, if you will, and how the people themselves fit into all of this. And that ultimately, at the end of the day, it was all about the people. And so, I, you know, I think my, my maturity allowed me to then shift and focus more on the people than, than so much on results and bottom line. You've been recognized with two presidential rank awards two different administrations. You founded your own company. Tell us a little bit more about your background from the beginning and, and how did that lead you to where you are today? Well, 
You know, it's kind of interesting, like you said, that I started out as a GS2 of Social Security Administration. I mean, what I really wanted to be was a criminal prosecuting attorney. It's, that's That was absolutely my dream. I sometimes joke and say what I really wanted to be was a mafia don, but that wasn't going to work out. So, you know, had to be a criminal prosecuting attorney. But, you know, I had to get a job to pay for college. I, you know, it wasn't in the cards that I was going to be able to go to college without a job. So I applied at the Social Security Administration, or I'm sorry, at the unemployment office, and lo and behold, I got a job at Social Security. I didn't even know it was federal, to be honest. Uh, from there, I went to the Department of Defense, and I found this, this career field called labor and employee relations. And honestly, it was as close as I was going to get to being a criminal prosecuting attorney. I didn't go on to be a, a criminal prosecuting attorney, but I went on courtesy of the Department of Defense to get both my bachelor's and my master's in leadership, because the whole study of leadership, I just find incredibly fascinating. Um, you know, from hi historical to current, uh, current times, I just, it's just something that's just really fascinated me. And so I just, I would say I'm a lifelong learner of leadership. And then I would say some of the other things that got me maybe where I am today is I never really said no to anything. If people asked me to take on a new challenge, even if I wasn't sure I was going to be successful at it, I would say, you know what, not sure this is going to work out, but more than happy to give it a try. And it always worked out. But I think giving things a try and just not saying no to opportunities is what really led from one position to the next. I feel like I was always rewarded for just stepping in or stepping up and taking on the challenges that sometimes no one else wanted to do. Angie, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you, Shane. It's such a pleasure. I, I really appreciate you giving me this opportunity. Thank you. This has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm CEO of WEPA, Shane Canfield. Looking forward to talking to you next time. Reconnect with a carpool or van pool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply.